Romans chapter 11, and we are going to, as if we haven't been slow enough already, but we're going to slow down a little bit even more um, today because we've got, we've got three verses we want to cover. And, you know, we've got a couple of phrases in these verses that are much debated, much discussed, um, you know, much disagreed upon. Uh, let's just put it that way. And so what we're going to try to do is just really slow down and, and try to make an argument from the context, try to make an argument from the scriptures um, as to what we think those phrases mean. And so we'll, we'll look at that this morning. And so kind of call it getting behind the curtain. You know, we're, we're going to get into a section where God is going to show us not only what's going on in a, in a summary fashion, what's going on right now, but also what's going to happen in the future, okay? And he's going to explain kind of what's happening now, what's going to happen in, into the future. Now, last week, we left uh, really that illustration about the olive tree. And um, I know for some of you, that was clear, and others, that was clear as mud. So it just kind of depended on uh, maybe how it was explained or how you understood it, or maybe even the background on how it's been explained before. But remember, what, what we were trying to communicate, at least what we understood, is that in the last section, starting in about verse 11 through verse 24, Paul's main audience was Gentiles, the entire Gentile world. And what he was explaining in real simple, uh, simplistic way, if we can kind of summarize it, was that God is not done with Israel, that they haven't fallen, that they should never be able to get back up. And then he explained how he, he's worked out the mechanics of the Abrahamic covenant. How can he extend blessing to Gentiles, which is what he says he's going to do in Genesis twelve three? How did he do that? Well, what he did is he used this illustration of an olive tree. He said Israel was the natural branches in this olive tree. They were entitled and positioned to benefit from all the blessings promised to them in the Abrahamic covenant. But what we started to see, especially in Paul's day, and we saw it before, but in Paul's day, since he's writing to his hearers, we started to see some of these natural branches, some of these Jewish people were not believing in the Messiah. And so they were being broken off of the olive tree. They were not going to benefit from the promises made to them in the Abrahamic covenant. We also see something unique is, is as a result of their rejection, God grafted the entire Gentile world into this olive tree. In other words, he made this blessing available in the Abrahamic covenant available to all nations. And when you look at the Abrahamic covenant, that's the promise, all families of the earth, all nations. So we're talking about the entire Gentile world. So the Gentiles didn't get into this olive tree through faith. Every Gentile in the world has mercy available and extended to them. That's why the, the gospel message is to whosoever will believe. It's available to all. That blessing found in that Abrahamic covenant, that was the root of this olive tree. But how did Gentiles stay in the root? How do Gentiles, how do Jews stay in the root of blessing? They have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the prerequisite to stay in. That's what we, we looked at last week. And so I want to move on to verse 25. And what we're going to see is he's going to, again, get us behind the scenes, get us behind the curtain. And verse 25 says this, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so um, one of the things that we want to understand is, is Paul is going to now explain kind of what's going on behind the scenes in a big picture kind of way. He's going to explain, okay, why is Israel rejecting their Messiah? 
How long is that going to last? When, what's going to precipitate the change in their response? What's going to precipitate um, their salvation? And so he's kind of going behind the scenes. But I also want you to notice that he shifts audiences, shifts audience here. And what does he do in verse 25? Now who is he talking to primarily? Brethren. You see the word brethren. So now he's talking to believers, and he's giving believers a behind-the-scene look. What's going on with Gentiles? What's going on with Jews in this present day? Before, uh, the primary audience and, and the church got to listen in on, you go all the way back to um, verse 13 and really in verse 12, but he says, for I speak to you Gentiles. And now he's switching back to a segment of believing Gentiles, believing Jews in the church at Rome. And so that's important to understand this shift in audience. And so what he wants to uh, know and what he wants them to understand, he calls it, he calls a mystery. And it, the, a mystery simply means something hidden that was not fully manifested or completely disclosed before. It is not Scooby-Doo, spooky, Mystery. That's not what we're talking about here. This isn't the mystery machine, right? This is specifically has to do with revelation. And what he's going to, what he's going to share with these believers is something that has not been revealed before. In other words, you couldn't go to an Old Testament address and find the teaching that Paul is about to give. That's what mystery means. In fact, you look through scriptures, there, there's a lot of things that are a mystery referred to. Just, just basically off the top of the head, you know, Christ in you in Colossians 1 is referred to as a mystery. Now, now the Jews had Emmanuel, God with us, but they didn't have God in you. That's, that was not revealed in the Old Testament. That was something unique. That's special um, in the church age. The church itself is referred to as a mystery, something not before revealed in the Old Testament. And so when we talk about a mystery, again, this is something that's hidden or not fully manifested or completely disclosed before. And so Paul wants them to understand this for a reason. Because if they didn't understand this, they might become wise in their own opinion. They might start speculating. In fact, we saw what some of the Gentile response was, right? They were, they were boasting. They were, they were bragging. Yeah, God's done with them. It's because we're so great. He's grafted us in. We saw that in the last couple of weeks. And so he didn't want them incorrectly uh, making up their mind as to why Israel appears to have been rejected by God. He didn't want them to st- kind of jump out in speculation. And, you know, they're not the only ones that has that kind of problem, <laughs> is it? How many times have, do we sometimes take partial knowledge and jump to a conclusion? immediately assume things. And so, so Paul is trying to help um, nip that in the bud or maybe even be proactive to get out in front of that type of, uh, type of ignorance as he labels it in verse 25. He says, brethren, I, uh, I do not desire, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery, okay? Just not knowing what's, what's going on. So he's gonna reveal this mystery. And so what was this mystery? Well, the text tells us blindness in part has happened to Israel, until, and we're going to see until, until what, but that's the mystery. And so as we look at this word blindness, we've seen this before in this section. And God has basically said that he has hardened, petrified, or rendered insensitive the nation of Israel. But as we looked in that section, as we compared God's character to other points in history where he's said to have hardened somebody, or in Romans 1, where he's said to, to given somebody over to their own lust. Why does God do this? Why did God interject and, and, and implement this blindness or this hardening on the nation of Israel? 
Well, it's because they've rejected him. And not only have they rejected him, this is ongoing rejection now that he's singing. So now he's temporary, temporarily blinding them for a purpose. Number one, he's bringing blessing and opening that up to all Gentiles through the rejection. And number two, if you recall, when Gentiles start responding to the gospel, what would it do to the Jewish people? And start to create envy and jealousy. And they would want the same thing. They would want what already belonged to them. And so this is what we see. So blindness in part, again, it shows us that it's not in full. It's not going to continue. It's not a, uh, an on, ongoing blindness that will never end. At some point, there's a, there's a termination to this blindness of the nation. That's what we're seeing here. And this is a mystery. This is, hasn't been disclosed before. Paul is revealing something that's never been taught before. In fact, it says that this blindness has happened. It's a perfect tense verb. It means that it's happened at a point in time and the results continue in the present. In other words, as you look at the Jewish nation today, if, if we understand the fullness of the Gentiles, which is the point of termination of this temporary blindness, we see, we see that as still future. So what we would say is that just like in Paul's time today, Jews have a temporary blindness that's being applied to them. Okay, And I don't know if anyone here has ever tried to share the gospel with a Jewish person or somebody from Jewish heritage. Um, it, it, can, it can go well or it can go incredibly bad. Um, and, and many times um, there's, a, there's a rejection because once you identify Jesus as their Messiah, then it, the, the conversation goes off the table. I mean, that's, there's no interest at that point. Um, and so there's a, there's a temporary blindness that explains why some of um, that why there's not great uh, masses of Jews responding to the gospel even in, in our day. They weren't doing it in Paul's day as well. And so this explains this. Again, notice that this is a national or corporate blindness as it relates, um, I believe, to God's method of making them righteous. They, they are blind. In fact, we, we've seen that in chapter 10. They were pursuing, they were zealous in pursuing, seeking to establish their own righteousness. Chapter 9, at the end, they were stumbling over the righteousness of God. God's provision of righteousness through the work of Jesus Christ. They didn't want that. They wanted to earn their own righteousness through law-keeping. And so this is a corporate blindness. It, it applies to the masses. But the good news is there are some. There's a remnant. We've kind of looked at that in our passage too. There are some that are responding to the gospel. And praise God for that. Praise God. This is their Messiah. This is their scriptures. They should be able to see it more clearly than anybody else. It's there for them. And it's theirs. It's, it's promised to them, not only um, in the Abrahamic covenant, but all the way back in Genesis 3.15 when God promised to send a deliverer. So this is part of their Old Testament scriptures. And yet nationally, corporately, they're blinded. You remember what they said at the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate said, well, I want to release this man to you. And he said, well, they said, we don't want him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And then Pilate said, well, I'm washing my, my hands clean of this man. And they said, you know what? Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. There was this corporate rejection of Jesus Christ, corporate rejection of their Messiah as led by the leaders of Israel. And so now they are in a period of temporary blindness. But notice, just like in the Old Testament, God is gracious. God, is, God still has a plan for his nation. God still loves Israel. And God still intends to fulfill his promises, his unconditional promises to the nation. And so we see this time element given. He uses this word until, and it indicates that the blindness is, again, not permanent, um, and there's a set time period involved. And so what is that set time period involved? What, when does this stopwatch, so to speak, 
end? When does he click it to, to stop this temporary blindness? Well, we get this phrase, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, that's really clear, right? Because this is where a lot of debate comes in. This is one of the phrases that we want to look at. What does that mean? What does the fullness of the Gentiles mean? Well, a lot of people will take that phrase and they'll say, okay, well, fullness of the Gentiles, um, it kind of sounds like a phrase Jesus used in Luke 21, uh, the times of the Gentiles. And so, so maybe these are related. And so a lot of people will say, well, the fullness of the Gentiles is the times of the Gentiles. Now, let's go to Luke 21, 24 for a second. And let's go ahead and, and read this. Luke 21, 24. Uh, and again, try to, try to just get us up to speed on even the context in Luke 21. Jesus is in the process of answering questions from his disciples. Those questions are found um, in, let's start in verse 5. Um, then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another, that they shall not be thrown down. Verse 7, so they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be, and what, will, what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And so they're asking about when is the city going to be destroyed, and when is the sign of his coming? You know, in Matthew, you get, you get really three clear questions coming out of there, and that is when's the city going to be destroyed? When's the temple, when is the temple, the stones, not going to be remained on top of one another. When is that going to happen? And so Jesus explains that and he talks about the sign of his coming and he talks about what to expect in the end times. And so that's the, that's the context of the passage we're in. I wish we could spend more time on that. That's a, that's a really a fascinating study in and of itself. But go to verse 24. And, and he's talking about um, when Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies. And I, I believe this takes us out um, into the days of the tribulation, the future tribulation period. And if you put that with Matthew, I think you can see some comparisons there. But look at verse 24. He says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so is that what the fullness of the Gentiles is? Does that mean once that time period that the Gentiles are no longer in trampling Jerusalem or in charge or ruling over Jerusalem, is that what that means? I don't think so. And, and let me tell you why. We've got to, this is one of those passages, we've got to tie scripture with scripture and try to put together a, a comprehensive understanding of this. So I would say no, because I, I believe and understand that the times of the Gentiles are spoken of in Luke 21 um, is primarily a political term. Um, and it's referring to this long period of time beginning with the Babylonian captivity of Judah and ending at Christ's millennial kingdom reign on earth. And you say, well, wow, man, you're sure getting a lot out of Romans eleven twenty five with that. But let me, let me tell you why I think that. And, and I think this is the, the whole purpose of Daniel's um, prophecy or interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. And so go with me to Daniel chapter 2 as we try to understand this concept here. And again, trying just to show that the, I don't think this is the times of the Gentiles that we're talking about in Romans eleven twenty five. that the times of the Gentiles refer specifically to, to Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel 2, we're going to start in verse 36, but remember Daniel is interpreting 
uh, a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's dream had this great image and it, it, had, um, it had a head of gold and it had, a, and we'll read through the different pieces, but it was this image, this statue made up of different components. And what Daniel gives him interpretation, he says, the reason God gave you that dream is because you and your kingdom are a head of gold. There's gonna be a kingdom that follows you. And so what he outlines is all the kingdoms that are gonna take place in this world, this world Gentile kingdoms, before God sends his earthly kingdom to crush all of those Gentile kingdoms. And that time period from the Babylonian captivity of Judah until Christ's millennial reign, Christ's kingdom is gonna be the one that crushes the rest of these Gentile kingdoms. That time period, I believe, is known as the times of the Gentiles. So that's what I think Luke 21 is talking about. But let's read it. Um, Daniel 2, verse 36. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet uh, and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile." As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever." And so, hence the end of the times of the Gentiles. And so, the fullness of the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles, I think it's talking about two different things. And so, what we want to do is, is understand in our context what the fullness of the Gentiles are. Well, go back, be, go back with me to Romans chapter 11. And again, you know, one of the things with, with Bible study and Bible interpretation, is we try to stay as best we can we try to stay in context. We try to just stay in context and see if there's any, any kind of clues here that might help us define this word. And so we go back to Romans chapter 11. Look at verse 12. Now, if their fall, speaking of Israel, is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness and notice the same word used there of a future date when Israel would experience fullness. And so Israel will experience fullness in the future. And Gentiles, guess what? They're in a position to experience fullness now if they'll simply believe the gospel. And so what does the fullness of the Gentiles refer to? How would I define it based on this context? Well, I think it refers to the present age of Gentile positional privilege of blessing via the Abrahamic covenant. And so when this time of of blessing uh, is, is cut off, so to speak, then the blindness, the temporary blindness of Israel will be lifted. But it's not until the fullness of that number comes in. 
And so in context, what do we mean by coming in? Well, all of them are grafted into the root. We saw that in our illustration. But coming in must refer to the Gentiles who remain in the root through faith. And so the idea is that this fullness of the Gentiles, this time period that Paul addresses here, that's, that he's trying to explain to clarify this mystery, this something that hasn't been revealed as to the blindness of Israel, seems to be that their blindness will be lifted when the last Gentile puts their faith in Jesus Christ. When that full number, the, the full number will take advantage of this blessing from the Abrahamic covenant by putting their faith in Christ. And so we've said this before, but the whole Gentile race or population um, has been grafted into the root, but they only remain in the root through belief. And so when that full number has believed, fullness of the Gentile is complete, blindness in part will be lifted upon Israel at that time. That's a future date. And that's um, what, I would, what I would say in just tying some other passages in is when this happens, um, the temporary blindness will be lifted and the church will be raptured. And that's kind of how I would put the rapture in at this point. Because the second the last person, the last Gentile believes, I believe God's going to take the church up and he's going to call us into the air to meet him in the air as First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But the point of that passage is not really the rapture per se. It's to explain when the blindness of Israel is going to be lifted. And it's going to be at this, at this point I believe. Now, that doesn't mean that all of them are going to be saved, but that the blindness is going to be lifted, and I believe a lot more are going to be responding to the gospel. In fact, you're going to see in that time period, by the time we get into the book of Revelation, the time of the tribulation, we're going to find that the temple has been rebuilt. And so there's going to be a renewal in the interest and the teachings of the Old Testament by Jewish people searching for that Messiah, getting back to getting back to their understanding of their religion. And so all of this is going to come about um, at that moment. The fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so what we see is the fullness of Israel is going to take place after the fullness of the Gentiles. And so Paul is looking forward to that day. Because remember, he cares about his countrymen. And so he wants to see that. And so moving on into verse 26, we deal with this second phrase, um, all Israel will be saved. And so verse 26 and 27, let's just take those as a unit. He says, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, remember the, the word saved in a Jewish context and their thinking always tied to deliverance into their millennial kingdom, okay? In fact, when you look back at even Joel 2, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, that's in a passage dealing with deliverance from the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, into the millennial kingdom. When, when Christ himself, or in their view, the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom on earth, and he would save them, he would deliver them, he would give them entrance into the millennial kingdom. So keep that in the back of your mind as we look at this, this word saved, um, because Paul, again, is going to go to some Old Testament passages about the second coming of Christ and, and really detailing that time period in their history. So all Israel, and, and this is where we get to uh, that second phrase that, that has a lot of debate around it. And so typically... Uh, when we do Bible study, we want to just define words the way they're commonly defined, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone would argue with that. I would hope not. Um, for instance, all means all, 
There's no, there's no hidden meaning in the Greek or, or anything like that. All means all. And so typically when we approach Bible study, we want to define words the way they're commonly used. There's one exception. There's only one exception. If the context of the passage dictates we consider an alternate meaning, then we, we need to do that. We need to consider an alternate meaning. Now, there's a big warning, and if I could have highlighted that and made it flash, I would have. But the warning is, the context has got to dictate this, not our theology. Now, <laughs> I say that tongue-in-cheek because I know I'm a human being, and I uh, unwittingly allow my theology sometimes to dictate my interpretation. I don't want to. I think that's wrong. But I'm not going to claim that I don't do that sometimes. I just don't do it intentionally. But nobody should do that. We shouldn't allow ourselves. We should try to catch ourselves if we're doing that just to allow the word of God to stand in authority above us versus us standing in authority over the word of God and allow it to, to speak for itself. That's the attempt here. That's the attempt in any kind of Bible study. So here's the deal. All means all. We want to take the normal meaning of words. Unless the context gives us an alternate meaning, then we need to consider that. That's kind of the initial argument. So let's dive in and look at this a little bit further. Okay, all means all, no doubt about it. Okay, in this passage, it says all uh, Israel shall be saved or all Israel will be saved. So we're not going to redefine all. All means all. We're just going to take that as a normal meaning. But what does Israel mean? as Paul is using it here. And you think, oh man, that's, uh, that's a little shady. Why are you starting to say that? Because typically in the scripture, when you see Israel, it means national Israel, right? And we, don't, we try not to, to deviate from that. We try to allow the context to give us that normal meaning. But here's the thing we've got to understand that in this passage, Romans 9 through 11, Paul has used the word Israel to refer to all of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's ethnic, physical descendants. And to me, that's the normal meaning of the word. And unless context dictated otherwise, that's what we go with. We just go, we got to go with that, right? We want to just approach Bible study with a normal, literal, grammatical approach um, and how we interpret things. But here's the thing in, in, in Romans 9 through 11, Paul has also used the term Israel to refer to the saved physical descendants. In other words, those who have been saved by faith, the, the remnant, true Israel. You know, we go back to Romans 9, 6, and he says, Paul says this, not, not me, that Paul says this, Romans 9, 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And so he introduces an alternate meaning there. And so it's our job, hopefully from the context to say, well, which one does he mean here? Which one does he mean here? And hopefully, uh, maybe if we don't get it in the context, maybe we can get some other scriptures that give us the whole picture of what he's talking about. And so as I see it here, um, we've got a question. How does he use this word Israel? What, what meaning of the word is he using here? And how do we know for sure? What I see it is we've got really two options, okay? And let's just kind of look at those. Option one, and let's just kind of play through option one and see if we like this option. Um, option one would teach that all means all, and it means all ethnic Israelites. In other words, physical blood relations to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what that's teaching, and, and we'll go on and look at more details in verses 26 and 27, but what that is teaching is this, is when Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom on earth, Every person that's got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's blood in them is going to get into the kingdom. 
That's what option one would teach. That would be all, all Israel, all physical ethnic uh, Israel. And so some will teach that every ethnic Israelite will be saved once this blindness is lifted, even those who do not respond in personal faith in Jesus Christ. They'll say, it doesn't matter. You're a child of Abraham, you're in. You're in. That's what all Israel means. And so that would be one interpretation. The, the problem with this, there's a couple problems, um, but the problem with this is since this passage is dealing with the salvation of the Jews, we know from the teaching in this passage that God has never worked on a physical birth principle. Never. This would be the first time in history that he said, oh, you're physically related to Abraham. Okay, you're in. In fact, if we go to the ministry of John the Baptist back in Matthew 3, he, his message to the nation of Israel was to repent, change their mind. What were they to change their mind about? Well, one of the things they were to change their mind about, if we went back to Matthew 3 and had time, Matthew 3, 9, he says they need to not trust in the fact that they're Abraham's children. They don't, he doesn't want them trusting in that birth principle. Why? Because God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. That's not how you get into the kingdom. And then Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. That would be against this view. Well, no, in order to see the kingdom of God, you just got to be a child of Abraham. So that's why I have personally problems with this option. And so uh, an option 1A (laughs) coming off of this um, would say this. Others would teach that the return of Christ will be so compelling for the Jew that's living at that time that all the Jews alive will at that moment put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I like that view. I wish that was true. I I really do. Because that would just be awesome. Wouldn't that be just a great ending to the story of the nation of Israel? Jesus appears. They all said, man, there he is. We love him. We're going to put our faith in him. We were were wrong. But, But here's the problem. I love that story. I wish it had that kind of ending. Personally, here's the problem that I have with it personally is, is as we compare scripture with scripture, as we take other scriptures from the Old Testament, we take other scriptures from the gospels, we're going to see that some ethnic Jews will be judged and they will not be allowed entrance in the millennial kingdom. That's, that's just what other scriptures teach um, because they have rejected God's Messiah. They won't be saved. They won't be delivered into that kingdom. In fact, we're going to look at, um, I'm going to give you some passages you can kind of consider on your own study. And just for time, we're not going to read all of these, but let's go to Matthew 8, which I think is a great representative of this thought. Matthew chapter 8, verse 10 through 12. You remember the, the, the context that we find ourselves in and coming into Matthew 8 is that Jesus has healed a centurion servant, okay? A, a Gentile, a Gentile's servant. Um, and not only that, he didn't even go there in person, right? Jesus was ready to go and heal him. And the centurion says, no, no, no. I know who you are. I know what you can do. You can just give the word <laughs> from a distance and, and my servant will be healed. And so this is, this is Jesus's response to that. Verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. 
And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so you see, that's just representative that not, not every ethnic Jew is going to be saved when Jesus comes back. There are going to be some that will reject him. There'll be some that will be cast out in outer darkness because why? What did Jesus identify there? They didn't, they didn't have faith. They didn't have the faith that the Gentile. But, but there'll be many Gentiles that get to enter in because they have faith. And so uh, I don't think it can be option 1A. And um, there's some pa- other passages to consider. So to me, that leaves us with um, one option left. Option two. And where all means all, but Israel, in this context, means true Israel, as defined by Paul. Uh, true Israel, as defined by Paul. And see, Paul defined true Israel as those that not only have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their fathers, but they also have God as their father. They've been born again. And again, Romans 9, 6, where Paul says, not all Israel uh, is Israel. And so I believe that he's making this distinction. The only reason we would go to that alternate meaning in this passage is because Paul has given an alternate meaning for the word Israel, true Israel, the remnant. And so um, what is this saying? Well, these are ethnic Israelites who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and they become a child of God. They become a true son of Abraham and thus they will enter the millennial kingdom. They will be saved as we're about to read in these next couple of verses. And again, this will follow uh, the great tribulation period uh, spoken of not only in Jeremiah and in, in Joel and elsewhere, but, but also in the book of Revelation detailed, uh, that seven-year period, uh, that 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And so here we go. Uh, we kind of hit those, those two phrases, and, and obviously uh, would love to talk to you more about it. Okay, we got to move on, but if, but if you have an interest in talking more, just just call me and we'll, we'll get together. Love to buy you a coffee and we can talk more. This will, it's a fun conversation. And so um, we've got some additional timing indicators for us in this passage, okay? So what is the timing of all this? You know, as we, as we look at the, the temporary blindness being lifted from Israel, uh, as we look at the fullness of the Gentiles, as we look at all Israel being saved, when is this going to happen? What do we gather from this text? So what's the timing um, well, we can pick up some timing indicators from the last few verses. In fact, we're going to jump back up into verse 25 for the first timing indicator. And that was something that we've already covered, this fullness of the Gentiles. When that happens, this temporary blindness is going to be lifted for Israel. Again, uh, what we understand that to be is when the final number of Gentiles are added to the church, the church will be raptured and this temporary blindness will be lifted from Israel. Um, and then just to give some other timing things, following the rapture, we'll have, uh, as if we understand prophetic timelines correctly, we'll have the seven-year tribulation. Now, a lot of people have some confusion on the rapture and the tribulation, um, and that's a whole nother, <laughs> I mean, that's a whole nother debate. I'm opening up like multiple cans of worms this morning, sorry. Um, but there's some debate there, but, but the way we understand it is the rapture will occur first, but the rapture doesn't set off the seven-year tribulation period. The signing of the covenant by the Antichrist with the nation of Israel starts that seven-year period. So there could be, you know, it could be the rapture and it could be the covenant right back to back. Or there could be some time period between the rapture and the signing of that covenant. We don't, we don't know. It's not detailed. Um, and so the seven-year tribulation period will begin and then there'll be a time of great trial. 
and persecution for Jewish people everywhere on earth. And you can read about that in Revelation 12. You know, God shows what is going on um, in heaven and the fact that he casts Satan out for good where he no longer has access to heaven. Satan knows his time is short. And who does Satan focus his attention on? Israel. And he is trying to wipe them out. And that's why Jesus says at the midpoint of the tribulation in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation, which I believe is the Antichrist going into the temple of God, declaring himself to be God, demanding worship of himself as God, and then the false prophet setting up an image uh, that can talk. I, I mean, imagine that. This image that he sets up can talk and is telling everyone they need to worship the Antichrist. And then if they don't, the image can kill people. We've got some wild stuff going on at this time period. But Jesus says, when you see that, he tells the Jewish people, run. Get, get out of Jerusalem. Go. And woe to, to you if you're pregnant. And it's a little hard to run when you're pregnant, right? <laughs> so that makes sense. And so he says, get out of Dodge. Just get out. And then what we find in Revelation 12 is those who escape and get out, God miraculously protects them for the rest of the tribulation period. You kind of see that detailed in Revelation 12. Again, for time's sake, we won't go there. Now, what is the second timing element uh, element as to when all Israel will be saved? Well, we get this second timing element in verse 26b. We see that the deliverer will come out of Zion. And Paul here quotes Isaiah 59, 20. And so if the deliverer is coming, this immediately takes us to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So now we're, we're talking about the future here. We're talking about the end of this seven-year tribulation period. This is when all Israel, all of those who, all the remnant, if you will, are going to be saved. They're going to be delivered into the millennial kingdom, uh, which is an earthly kingdom. And so at this time, we learn from the scriptures that Jesus Christ himself will descend to earth, return to the Mount of Olives, and he will physically save the Israelites who will flee to him for safety. And um, again, we're, we're doing a lot of cross-referencing this morning, and so if you don't like that style, um, I'm sorry, but I think it's important to see these scriptures, at least some of these as we look at. So Zechariah 14, 4 through 9, you can hold your place in Romans if you want to listen or if you want to see it uh, yourself, you can turn there, but... Speaking of the coming of the Lord, in verse 4, it says, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Uh, And all I got to say is this, the Jesus that's pictured in the movies that we see and that's pictured in the Gospels, he's going to be a lot different in his second coming. And, and all you have to do is read about John's description of him in the book of Revelation. I mean, we're talking about almighty God here. And, and, and the image that you have, the details that he's standing on a mountain and it's splitting between his legs. And what would happen if I stood on a mountain and it started splitting? Well, I'd have to jump to one side or the other. Not Jesus. <laughs> His left foot's going to be on this side and his right foot's going to be on this side. And it's, and you know, he's not stretch arm strong. He's just big. You know, he, he can, he can navigate that mountain. And then we see in verse five, then you shall flee through my mountain valley for the mountain valley shall reach to 
Azel, yes, you shall flee as you flee from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day, it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter, it shall occur. And look at this, verse nine. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day, it shall be said, the Lord is one and his name is one. And so we see that when Jesus comes, the, the deliverer will come out of Zion. That's when Israel's going to be saved. It's going to be at that point at his second coming. And so that gives us a timing. And, and what we're going to see too is additionally that many, but not all, this is, this is what I understand, many, but not all ethnic Jews will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ at that moment. I'm at that time because they're going to recognize him as their Messiah. In fact, Zechariah 12 tells us that they're going to recognize the one whom they have pierced. And some of them are going to say, ah, big deal. And some of them are going to say, that's my Messiah. I trust, I believe that Jesus died for me. They're going to, at that moment, put their faith. But not all, but I do believe many because that blindness will have been lifted. We have one other kind of time element given to us in our passage, and that's in verse uh, 27, in the end of verse 26. Uh, that phrase, he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And then in verse 27, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so what we find there is really when this new covenant is going to be implemented. And um, turn with me there, and we'll kind of we'll close out the message today in Jeremiah 31. Uh, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, in verse 31. This is also repeated in Hebrews 8, this, this new covenant language. So let's, let's read it, and then let's talk about it as it relates to our Romans 11 passage. So Jeremiah 31, 31 Uh, says this, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So again, if we're going to take the Bible and interpret it literally and interpret it um, normally, who's the new covenant made with? Made with the church or is it made with Israel and Judah? What's the text tell us? Israel and Judah. There's another can of worms. We'll deal with that uh, another time. But, But the new covenant is a further expansion. You remember we talked about this at the beginning of Romans 9. The new covenant is a further expansion of the blessing promise in the Abrahamic covenant. Remember how God expanded on the land promise. He, he did that in Deuteronomy, he expanded on the seed promise. He did that in the Davidic covenant. And so now he expands on the blessing portion of the Abrahamic covenant in the new covenant. And look at what is going to be unique about Israel in that day. This is what's really cool. Look at verse 32. He, he's going to make a covenant with them, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's going to be different than the Mosaic covenant. In the day that I took them by the hand and to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 34, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. And then we'll look at that last phrase, uh, for I will, give, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. We'll look at that in, in kind of the next um, point. But here's the thing, the, the, the miraculous thing that God is going to do in the new covenant is he's going to take an entire people and, and, and like we, we kind of joke about in Christianity sometimes, you know, when we're, when we're new Christians and we're learning stuff and we're just like, man, I wish God could just take a, da- a data download and just jam it in my head so I can just know everything. So I don't keep making these stupid mistakes. I don't keep living in sin. I actually know what's going on. And in a sense, in the new covenant, that's exactly what God's going to do for the nation of Israel. And we learn all, elsewhere in Ezekiel that they are actually going to also get the empowerment of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So not only do they know the Lord, but they're going to actually have resources by which to live. That is going to change the way that the nation of Israel responds to the Lord. In fact, it is going to be so different than at any other time in their history because what did Israel typically do? God did something amazing. Man, God's awesome. Two minutes later, yeah, but I'm still eating manna. What's up with that, God? Yeah, I know you did the Red Sea thing, but come on, can we get some meat, you know, worked into the diet somewhere? I mean, they were, they were obnoxiously rebellious and rejecting. And you know what? There's going to be a time in their history. It's a promised blessing. They are going to be in fellowship with the Lord. No man's going to have to teach them about the Lord. And so he expands upon that here. And we see that um, the phrase that's used in Romans eleven twenty six. he will turn ungodliness away from Jacob. How's he going to do that? Writing the law in their hearts data downloading what they need to know about God, giving them the spirit of God. There's not going to be ungodliness in Jacob. Now, we know from the scriptures in Revelation 20 that when Satan is released after being uh, in bondage for a thousand years, he is going to stir up rebellion. And he is going to bring an army against King Jesus, which I, you know, I'd highly not recommend that to him. I mean, he's, he can read it too. And um, he's going to get destroyed. And praise God, God's going to take care of all of the enemies that we've ever had. He's going to take care of him at the end of that rebellion. But I believe because of the promise of the new covenant that Jewish people will not be a part of that rebellion. That that will be the Gentile nations that surround him because of this promise in the new covenant. Also another coffee talk. <laughs> so here's the other thing that we've got to see. And this is what's, what's great about the coming deliverance of uh, the deliverer out of, out of Zion. Not only will he turn away ungodliness from Jacob, we see in verse 26 of Romans 11, but he says this in verse 27, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And we've got to understand this is a big, big deal for a Jew. Because if we look at the Old Testament sacrificial system, sin was never taken away. Sin was simply covered. Sin, sin was simply covered temporarily. But when Jesus Christ died, he paid the penalty for their sins. And that's why John the Baptist could look at Jesus Christ and say, behold, the Lamb of God, who, who not covers the sins of the world, but he takes away the sins of the world. That's a promise to the Jewish people in their new covenant that God is going to completely remove or take away their sins. And so that will be the timing of when all Israel 
shall be saved uh, is during that millennial kingdom following the second coming of Christ. So how do we summarize this? Well, how about this for a real quick summary of verses 25 through 27? Um, The final Gentile person will put their faith in Christ. It's going to be immediately followed by the rapture of the church. Simultaneously, that's going to remove this partial blindness for the nation of Israel. This will be followed at some point. The interval is is unknown by a seven-year tribulation period, followed by the second coming of Christ, followed by the millennial kingdom of which all believing Israelites, i.e. the remnant, will get to enter the earthly kingdom and be saved. And that's kind of the summary, the timeline of, of what we're looking at here. And so um, next week, we will continue on in Romans chapter 11. As best I can uh, tell, we'll have a couple more weeks in Romans 11, and then we'll have Celebration Sunday, which we'd love to invite you to be a part of and just rejoice in the faithfulness of God to this local body. Uh, for 30, this will be 36 years um, that God has had uh, this local body's presence in Noonan. And so I want to invite you to participate with that. And then the week after Celebration Sunday, um, I'm going to start a new uh, six-week series um, that I've entitled The Epidemics of Christianity. And so we'll, we'll bring out some more details on what we're going to cover. And then when we're finished with that, we'll go back to Romans 12. When we finish the book, finish the book, I promise. <laughs> All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, thanks. We don't want to get too far away from Jesus. We, uh, we, sometimes we get into uh, details, and, and they're great. Uh, we love to see uh, just how you put together your plan. But uh, really, we, we know uh, just even our life, uh, the life that we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God. So it's, it's all about Jesus. It's, um, uh, he's enough for every problem uh, and every trial that we might face and that we might be going through. And so, uh, Lord, would, would we be just uh, growing uh, in confidence in our Savior, uh, not only as, as the one who, who saved us from the penalty of the sin, but penalty of sins, but also the one who can save us from the power of sin in our daily life. And when we learn what it means to rely upon him, uh, to rest in him, to walk by faith, uh, we ask that as we, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.